morning I am uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ based on the sermon I presented on Monday at the New Smyrna Beach Martin Luther King Jr. celebration, um, in part because this week there was a baby born in our family, and there were a few days and nights where there were, was less sleep in the family, uh, in part because we had a leadership retreat, and some of my focus was pre- was preparing for that. Uh, in part because um, I got a lot of encouragement from individuals who heard it to proclaim it once again, including our mayor, who said, I sure wish we'd have recorded that. So we'll record it today at 9.30 and see where we go. I am a 58-year-old white male, overeducated and middle class, but that is not really who I am. Although I was not quite seven years old, I have clear and distinct memories of a Saturday morning in April of 1968, my family walked with others down the middle of the street in Cocoa, Florida. My younger brother was in a stroller. He was only about 15 months old. And when I asked my mother why we were doing this, my mother, who was almost 33 at the time, told me that we were marching because a great man had died. I must confess that Part of my thought that morning was how lucky it was that my younger brother got to be in a stroller because it was a really long walk for a six-year-old. I've chosen for the text this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, a portion from Matthew 5 and a portion from Matthew 6. These passages are part of the Sermon on the Mount, the largest collection of teachings of Jesus in any of the Gospels. Listen to the Word of God enclosed in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Words from Jesus, he said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist, any, and do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you take, and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also a second mile. Give to anyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. From Matthew 6, Two verses. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The reason I chose this passage is because in this collection of sermons, A Knock at Midnight, which happens to be available as an audiobook, I was able to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preach that very passage of Scripture. 
I think now you can actually listen to it on YouTube. So if you went onto YouTube and did a search for a knock at midnight or Dr. King's sermon on loving your enemies, you could probably hear his voice preach this sermon. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was first and foremost a preacher of the gospel. While we may know him as an advocate for jobs, for fairness, for peace, he was first a passionate, skilled, and determined follower of Jesus Christ. The preacher in him really got exposed during the I Had a Dream speech. He's doing his prepared remarks, and all of a sudden, one of the singers says, up on the, on the Lincoln Memorial stage, said to him, tell them about the dream, Martin. Then he preached, I have a dream. His impact and his reach is far beyond the bounds of the church. But that seems to me to be the intention of the call of Jesus, that the message is intended to be applied in the streets every day. We honor Dr. King near the anniversary of his birth. If he were only recognized inside the church for his impact in the world, we would celebrate and honor his memory on April 4th. All the saints have their day on the day of their death, not the day of their birth. That's part of the Christian tradition. It would be too much, I think, if we celebrated and honored his memory on April 4th. Babies are cute and birthdays are nice, but assassinations are mean and hate-filled, and it's too poignant even today for some of us. If you get a chance to listen to his voice preach the sermon on Love Your Enemies, I recommend it highly. These teachings from Jesus are not easy to bring into our daily lives, but that is exactly what Jesus is doing Jesus is teaching us that we are intended to take those teachings and put them into our daily life. We, Christ followers, believe that it is God speaking when Jesus says, love your enemies. And every one of us wonders how we are supposed to make that kind of love real. Jesus says, unconditionally love your enemies. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus lived in an occupied country subject to a king and also an emperor. And still Jesus tells us to set aside our allegiances to king and emperor and to crown God as king and emperor of our lives. Love God with all our heart, mind, strength, soul, everything. Unconditionally love God with your whole self and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus doesn't leave us any wiggle room unconditionally love everyone. And I can hear my inner voice. I can imagine your inner voice is jumping up and down and going, wait a second, I I understand what you're telling me, but um, what about so-and-so? It is hard to unconditionally love everyone. In love, there is no distinction, no east or west, no Gentile or Jew, no maleness or femaleness, no rich, no no poor, no sick or healthy, no guilty or innocent. In unconditional love, there's no nice or naughty, no gentle or mean. We are invited to see the thems through the eyes of God, beloved children of the Creator, the children who often act a little bit more childish than childlike. 
If we want this system of love to be more fair than unconditional, but we want this system of love to be more fair than unconditional. Fair is a really interesting context, really interesting concept. And in the context of celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. in the in the context of celebrating with our African-American brothers and sisters on the west side, it is a very interesting comment to talk about fairness. In the beginning, God created all of humanity and called us all very good. It's in the book, first chapter, read it. It does not take very long, though, in the story for us to wander off and need to be rescued by the grace of God. If you can remember the story, it's God loves us, we wander off. God loves us and forgives us, we wander off. God. Sometimes it includes a killing or two. And then God restores us back to the right way. But we wander off, and then God rescues us by God's grace. The theme today, our aim is unity. Unity in our community. It seems to be a pie-in-the-sky kind of dream these days, doesn't it? Unity. But today is a day for big dreams, audacious dreams. Neither Jesus nor King would allow us to talk about a shallow unity which is only surface deep. True unity calls us into an accounting of the truth with each other. It requires time and trust and listening and sharing. It may very well require some tears and some confessions and lots and lots of apologies. I am a 58-year-old white male, overeducated and middle class. This means that I have benefited from almost every possible privilege. For me, the starting line for success was much closer to the finish line than for many others. But for unity, and by that I mean true community. We must all do our work, the work that is ours to do. And my work, I cannot be silent. My work, I cannot take over. I have to listen and support the leaders of those who speak from inside the African-American community. I have to engage others. I have to do research. I have to put myself in others' shoes, walk a mile, and seek empathy. Maybe that is what Jesus is inviting us into. If someone asks for your shirt, give them your coat, Jesus says. Maybe it's not about the shirt and the coat. Maybe it's not about stuff and the economics of stuff. Maybe Jesus expects us to wonder why someone asked for our shirt or our coat. And for maybe Jesus wants us to see them as cold and naked with a hard night coming. Then the unconditional love, the seeing other as the creation of God and beloved by God means that we don't hoard our stuff for that just-in-case moment, that just-in-case-we-need-it moment, but we empty our storage units of our extra so that those in deepest need might not freeze. Maybe the whole point is an economics of compassion, not an economics of stuff. Maybe the whole point that Jesus is making is an uh, economics of empathy. 
We face right now a great challenge as a divided society. But we have been a divided society for more than 400 years. Before I die, I would like to imagine that the someday of the we shall overcome would finally come. I remember praying in the 70s for a few hopeless causes. Peace in the Middle East. Did anybody pray for peace in the Middle East in the 70s? The end of apartheid in South Africa. Anybody pray for the end of apartheid? And peace in Northern Ireland. I really, truly felt like I was throwing those prayers in the trash. I had no hope for any of those three things to pass. But we have seen in my lifetime progress on two of those three. Recently, a diverse group of Florida pastors has been working with a pastor in Northern Ireland who was instrumental in the peace accord in Northern Ireland over 20 years ago. The violence stopped in 1998, but the peace is still in progress. It's still a hard peace to manage day in and day out. Our United Methodist Bishop in Florida believes that we can learn some lessons about racial reconciliation here by looking at the process in Northern Ireland. And I'm grateful that our bishop is working hard on racial reconciliation. As a part of that group, I've been reading and researching. At one point, Dr. Lionel Long suggested that I read the book, The Color of Law, and I've not quite finished it, but man, do I commend that book to you. I also think it's important for us to remember that King was a genius by grabbing a hold of the techniques and tactics, the nonviolent, nonviolent protest tactics of Mohandas K. Gandhi. So what are the lessons that this group has been learning thanks to those who sought true peace in Northern Ireland? Well, let me tell you, they still have segregated schools and neighborhoods in Northern Ireland. Twenty years after the peace accord, only 7% of the students in Northern Ireland go to a non-segregated school. They have neighborhoods that's very, very clear which side of the identity process you are on. They have sectarian trolls to make sure that their own side stays loyal and will kill folks on their own side if you go too far to the middle or to the other side. There are terror-inducing tactics that work just like lynchings. Murals on neighborhood walls like statues of generals on horseback in the south. And the beginning of gerrymandering in the 1920s in Northern Ireland. The denial of voting power to the minorities. They had and have fences and gates and masked men. One of the things we learned is that it's critical for us to understand the difference for ourselves about context and identity. The context is where you are located, what you happen to be a part of. Um, it is where you are, not who you are. So I don't know whether you identify yourself as a southerner I don't think of myself as a Southerner, although I've lived in Florida all but five years of my 58 years. And I love Florida, even if Florida on occasion gets 
laughed at in the news. I love Florida. I'm not allowed to call myself a Floridian because I wasn't born here, and I know some folks who were, and they take it very, very seriously. I happen to be in the South. It's my context. I happen to live in Florida. It's my context. Your identity, though, your self-identity is who you consider yourself to be, how you define yourself. And so let me be clear. I define myself first and foremost as a follower of Christ. That's my identity. The beginning and the end. I happen to be white. I happen to be male. I happen to be a middle child living in New Smyrna Beach, married, a reader, overeducated, financially secure, orphan. Those are my context, not my identity. Our uniqueness as individuals is really based on our hopes and our dreams and our loves, not our ethnicity or our nationalities, right? In Northern Ireland, that very issue became so divisive. Because, in part, individuals in Northern Ireland, some of them identify themselves as Irish, and some of them identify themselves as British. And they don't necessarily identify themselves as Northern Irish with that common bond. They identify themselves. And so, anything that an Irish person does to a British person to lose their British identity is going to be fought, a hard-fought fight. And vice versa. What part for you is identity and what part for you is context? The other part that was troubling in Northern Ireland is some toxic theology came into that and was used by both sides in order to say, since they don't agree with us, God is on our side, therefore it's okay for us to kill them. That doesn't really read well against the backdrop of love your enemies, does it? So how do we seek the kingdom of God in divisive times? I think the first main point for that is that one word, listen. Eat together, spend time together. Especially if we can invest in young folks so they can spend school-age time together, it makes a difference if you grew up with folks that didn't believe exactly what you believe or see themselves exactly the way you see yourself. And so I invited our community. I said, we need more cookouts and campfires. No more delayed justice and a someday that's far away. Let's plant the seeds that we can today in the next generation so that before the next generation fades away, that someday has come. Let our children lead the way by letting them learn and play together. So we must keep investing in our children and not just our own children, but all the children. We need to aim for empathy. If that's the only phrase you remember from this morning, that may be the best thing that we can do. Aim for empathy. Let me know who you are enough that I can understand you enough that I can be in your same heart space. If you're brokenhearted, let me know what you feel like so I can be brokenhearted with you. I think we have to invest in long-sighted patience. 
aiming to build trust with folks we don't know. We have to spend time together, share dreams and fears and hopes, and not just turn off the conversation because we decide, oh, that's what you believe. And we kind of think through the process and all the eventualities and, oh, yep, I don't agree with you, never mind. But to share dreams and fears and hopes, share our family struggles and the places where we find happiness. It's important in this process of trust that we don't look to change others, but we listen and then care for one another. Drive for more loving and caring than worrying about being right. We have to change ourselves first. I think that part of this means, as the preacher in me says, part of this is we have to change our mindset from an economy of power or safety to a mindset of an economy of compassion and empathy, that what we value First is compassion and empathy. When you and I get a chance to sit down and talk, when we get to spend some time together, I will listen. And when it's my turn, I would like to tell you some stories. I'd like to tell you the story that I heard about one of our United Methodist District superintendents who in his three-piece suit on the way to a church district meeting was pulled out of his car and handcuffed in front of his family and sat on the concrete beside the gas pumps until they could identify who he was. He was guilty in the car on the way to church for no other reason than he was African-American. I would love to tell you stories about my time in Palm Coast at the United Methodist Church there. At one, on one Sunday morning uh, at the first service, we did a prayer concerns, and one of the African-American women, maybe in her 60s, said, I need a kidney transplant. At the second service, the middle service was our contemporary service, and I said, as part of our prayer concerns, somebody in our first service says they need a kidney transplant. And as one 70-year-old white male was leaving the room, he said, I'd like to find out if I can donate my kidney. What do I do next? And all I could think is, I don't think we take transplants from folks who are in their 70s. That's all I could think. I said, I'll find out. Months later, after the kidney transplant, those two sat together in worship every Sunday, her and her husband, and he, a widower who was missing the love of his life, felt like he had done something. in the Palm Coast Church, about half of the congregation came down from Brooklyn, and they knew each other both as um, uh, New Yorkers and as, and there, there was a sense of shared community already between the African-American. Palm Coast was about 50% African-American um, in, in our church and 50% non. And a number of the folks were there who, were, who worshiped there were New York City retired firefighters. A few of them were the ones who trained many of the people who didn't come out of the towers. African-American firefighters who went in. And we were heartbroken together. I met Negro Baseball League players and Tuskegee Airmen. I should tell you when you get to hear me talk about my experience as a 12-year-old going to the Black Baptist Church in town with my family... The only, we're sitting on the second to the last row, just the, the only white family in there. I'm 12 years old, and it, the, 
the Metropolitan Baptist Church in downtown Cocoa had the longest worship service I'd ever been to in my life. I was 12. It was long. And they did the offering where you kept going around in circles until they got enough. I, I'd like to tell you stories about the being the FAU, the Florida Atlantic University faculty sponsor of SARA, Students Against Racism and Apartheid, and the experience I had with students working against racism. One of the individuals who came to an event that the SARA group sponsored was the journalist who was part of finding out what happened to Stephen Biko in South Africa. So I've had some amazing experiences. I got to sing at the United Methodist Wesley Foundation at UNC Chapel Hill, got to get on stage and sing with the Black Student Union. That was some of the most fun choir experience of my life. I'm still working on getting the swaying right. But, oh, my gosh, did that feel like worship to me. I served as a summer youth worker in Miami and decided after that summer that I had to learn a little bit more Spanish. My Boy Scout troop included African-Americans. So early on, during public school in Cocoa, I got an experience that allows me to stand in this space differently and feel comfortable. One of the things that struck me was that Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my theological heroes, when he came to Union Seminary in New York City, he didn't go to the large, affluent, white church in New York City. He went to Harlem, and then he toured with some Union theological student friends through the South so that he could experience the church from the African-American experience. I want to start our journey in our community towards a deeper unity, and so I said on Monday, brothers and sisters, let me start by saying I'm sorry I'm sorry that I didn't understand how much you have to overcome in terms of your personal identity since your family heritage often ends at a list of relatives counted as property so that your family tree hits a dead end. I'm sorry that we have to teach our children differently so that they can navigate law enforcement and travel through certain neighborhoods and certain states differently. I can't imagine what the lack of jobs has meant for year upon year of financial insecurity to your families. I'm sorry that we call African-American men lazy at the same time that the very people who say that won't hire an African-American male. If you won't hire them, you don't get to call them lazy. I'm sorry that I'm part of a culture that clamors for justice until I feel safe enough and then I can ignore that others don't quite feel safe yet. We live in a culture where the deck has been stacked for some and against others and it's part of our normal status quo. I am sorry that is not right. It is not fair. And I especially want to offer honor to all the women in the community for raising children and doing whatever it takes to me. You are heroes. Unity needs to be a mutual goal. We are not in the promised land yet. 
The dream is still unrealized. So today, we have to admit there is still work to do. So we have to do something. Build trust. Listen deeper. Share deeper. Take time with each other. Be gracious and compassionate. I, I want to remind us all that hate and anger, even if we're right, generally is used by others to justify their hate and their anger. So even if we're right, all we do is perpetuate a community that hates and is angry. I am a 58-year-old white male, overeducated and middle class, but that is not really who I am. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, no better than anyone else. Just trying to live out the unconditional love that we are all called to live. Let us pray. God of grace and unconditional love, bind us together. Make us one, one body of Christ seeking to live out the unconditional love that you call us to live. In Jesus' name we pray.